Hello and welcome to the Ghosts of Lincoln podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hatch, and I'm going to tell you a scary story about where I'm from. Lake Street is a small, quiet street that runs east to west through Lincoln, sandwiched between the southernmost tip of Lincoln's near south neighborhood and the northern piece of Irvingdale neighborhood. It's the kind of sleepy, off-the-radar street that you don't usually get onto on purpose. You either know someone that lives there, you live there, or your phone just whispered the most cursed defamation of your orienteering skills and told you, Rerouting? It's about 12 to 13 blocks long, lined with Lincoln, Nebraska houses and Lincoln, Nebraska people, on the backside of the Bryan Medical Center's West Campus. You know how when you're a kid and your parents say, what do you think we are, made of money? Well, Bryan Medical Center is made of money. A lot of it. And if you're on Lake Street and you glance to the south, away from the gleaming monument to insurance premiums on the north side, you'll see a winding, thin strip of park. It starts at 14th and Lake and kind of sleepwalks its way through the neighborhood, where it bumps into Stransky Park and then eases its way south to the eponymous Irvingdale Park. Lake Street is the kind of place that doesn't necessarily have a lot of money of its own, but it's definitely old money adjacent. A mixture of blue collar and white collar that, when blended together, would make it look like the whole neighborhood's rooting for North Carolina. And they'd spell the word color with an O-U-R, but they'd kind of secretly hate that they spelled it that way. That would be Lake Street. Irvingdale Park which eventually attaches to the middle school of the same name, a place that so shamelessly sold out to alliteration that their school mascot is literally an aardvark. It contains a modest, perfectly Lincoln, Nebraska-sized park, just enough green to make you forget where you are for a few minutes and enjoy that lilting tune of a June breeze before that eventually turns to the asthmatic whisper of the midsummer on the Great Plains. There's a small pool there, too, one where I learned to dive off the diving board, the kind of plaintive little square of water where middle school boys try to impress middle school girls by viciously roughhousing in games of water basketball, and where I once had to pretend that the next level belly flop that had just crash landed directly in front of an older lifeguard didn't hurt me at all. It's the kind of small town neighborhood in a medium sized town that movies like The Sandlot and words like Americana all attempt to capture. Every town has one. Everyone has a memory from there. Only these are my memories, gilded and bright, unhaunted. There's something else in this neighborhood, something that they don't talk about at neighborhood association meetings or at the little blues music festivals that play at the park with the local food trucks and the kids wildly racing across the green space toward the playground, just below the surface. Like the gradual plate tectonics that are shifting below our feet, even in this flat land that's 1,400 miles from the nearest fault line. A subterranean bleakness 
that only occasionally oozes up from the crust, like the moisture that so readily gets sapped from the ground between the cracking sidewalks in the wet months of June and right before July. There is death here, as surely as there is apple pie and white picket fences. So let's throw another log on our digital campfires, huddle closer together, and someone pass me the damn s'mores. It's midnight now, and I'm going to tell you about the hauntings on Lake Street. This is a What the Husk podcast production, and this is The Ghosts of Lincoln, episode 4. There isn't just one ghost on Lake Street, nor just one sighting. This isn't about a singular event so much as it is about a series of events. The hauntings on Lake Street need to be together. They're a boy band of hauntings, and this is their reunion tour. In the same way that you don't get super excited to go to a J.C. Chazé solo concert. Similarly, this story, these stories are better when they each take a turn on a verse and they split the chorus. But, like Easy e when he first chucked the deuces in N.W.A. and a couple of other fingers, each solo story from this tale deserves to be remembered on its own as well. For the hauntings at Lake Street are nothing if not the sum of their parts. In Alan Boyce's text, he addresses the general feeling around the area of the lake itself. That in the past, and this will come as a huge shock, I'm sure, the area around the lake was allegedly some kind of farmland, a pasture for a dairy farm, perhaps, and that there may have been some young girl who's either washed away by the waters in the area or somehow met some other kind of grisly demise. We're a little unclear, but one thing is for certain, tales have surrounded the lake for decades. They don't fill it with water anymore. The lake, that is. When I was younger, the local fire department used to come out and crank gallons upon gallons of water into the oval indention days before the winter weather hit, and it would turn into a de facto ice skating rink, a local hotspot for kids who were too poor to go to an indoor ice rink, but had parents who were crafty enough to get them used skates on the cheap from a garage sale, or knew where a rental shop was somewhere in town. It was an ice skating rink that gave me the first and only game of pickup ice hockey I ever had, featuring brooms and horrifically unrefined puck handling, and kids playing in Nikes and snow boots, slipping and nearly killing themselves at every turn. There was a stoppage in play approximately every three minutes so young idiots could throw off their gloves under the ice and fight with all the alacrity of drunken baboons. Eventually the funds for this endeavor dried up like the water, leaving behind an empty, donut-shaped ring of grass around a solitary little island. Rudge Memorial Park, named after a filthy rich department store mogul who would be thoroughly disgusted by the antics of Jeff Bezos is as much haunted by the lack of a lake now as the stories that are told surrounding it. Our first ghost story from the area in the Guide to the Ghosts of Lincoln. The Joey Fatone of this little horror anthology surrounds the story of three young girls on their way past the park. It was one of those nights when the blistering summer heat 
finally exhales and the sun suddenly seems less full of malice. Dusk was settling on the three friends, worn out from their exhaustive, full-day pool extravaganza. They headed towards home, leaving behind the aforementioned Irvingdale pool. As the three girls crossed the footbridge, those minimal maintenance road of city bridges, the kind you walk across 200 times a summer when you're a kid, and that was probably commissioned as part of FDR's New Deal, one of them heard a noise, a kind of thick, low, whistling sound, almost like the sound of a neighbor across the street starting up their old black truck that's buried somewhere in the back half of a two-and-a-half-car garage. If this reference sounds oddly specific, it's because we have a neighbor who keeps starting up his old black truck in the back of his two-and-a-half-car garage, usually while he's playing White Snake. The only thing he's haunting, however, is my dreams. The girls froze, their wet hair suddenly seeming to cling to their shoulders like thick spider webs dangling uncomfortably. Almost in unison, they leaned over the west side of the bridge, the sound seeming to beckon to them with a menacing, gravitationally pulling moan. Beneath them was a man, or something different, the idea of a man. Later, when they would all whisper about this counter amongst themselves, they would all agree something was off. They watched, scalps tingling, ears suddenly full of that howling silence that fills them during that winding gray area between what you see and what you know and that viscous confirmation that settles in your brain that lets you know that your eyes, ears, and your suddenly Sahara dry mouth are all noticing the same thing. Something isn't right. Finally one spoke. Is he okay? Her voice vibrating through the momentary stunned silence like a call from the other side of a tunnel. As she spoke, so he left. Well, he didn't leave exactly. He disappeared, vanished. The man was and then wasn't. And he left three young girls breathless, bug-eyed, and suddenly very aware of present and future and all the weight that these realizations can have upon a young soul. They stared down below them now, seeing only a rocky creek bed, no man, and they walked slowly home mystified. They never forgot what they saw, and there were other reports of this same man, this unseen, inhuman specter. Like one report from a man named Dick Dutton, who found himself out for a frigid winter stroll in January of 1977. And I'm sure you guessed the year, because it had a grown man unironically going by the name Dick as part of the story. Which brings us to a segment that we like to call, The Ghost Roast. Okay, parents who would call their kids anything that can be immediately verbally weaponized into a joke about a man's junk? Why not Rick? Ricky? Richard? I know you all were storming the beaches of Normandy and overcoming the crushing poverty of the depression and the depressing lack of alcohol that occurred during the peak years of dudes being named Dick A.D. And I can respect that. But if someone names me anything that can be immediately turned into one of the jokes that I loved when I was 14 
and that I clearly still love now, I'm just going to pick one of the other 48 different variations that will allow me to not have to tell someone on the phone, actually, the name is Dick. No, it, it's Dick. Like, what if you get a bad phone connection? You're just going to shout, Dick. No, my name is Dick. Dick, over and over again. Leave that name to whales being hunted by insane boat captains with massive psychological baggage. Were dick jokes not a thing back in 1977? Was Dick Dutton actually just a hipster who wanted to constantly hashtag debate people about the merits of a name and dick shaming and how that would allow other people to win? Maybe. And let me be clear, I don't blame Dick Dutton. The dude's clearly a badass. I'm significantly too much of a coward to walk up to another dude and be like, Hey, what's up? I'm Dick. He's a damn hero. It's his parents who went through all the beautiful, tender moments of bringing a new human life into the world and then looked at each other with stars in their eyes and their hearts lifting up above them like the songs of an angel and said, Yeah, let's call him Dick. Am I worried this will get flagged for content just for saying this dude's name over and over again? You bet your dick I am. And this has been another edition of The Ghost Roast. So, as the heroically named Dick Dutton was out on this miserably cold night, the kind that makes a mockery of your jacket and seeps directly into the marrow of your bones, he found himself unusually close to the lake on Lake Street. At this time, it was still full of water and icy. As he approached the area, a strange, thick fog began to ease itself down on his line of sight, almost as if the night itself was breathing out the misty January air. Suddenly, Dick heard the sound of rushing water, a near-physical impossibility on a night as low-temperatured as this, and it caused him to suddenly find himself hyper-alert. Glancing out, Craning his eyes through the suddenly dense air around him, he spotted someone across the small lake. It was the same figure as described by the three girls. There and not. Dick saw an older man, his eyes indeterminable, but his gaze clearly staring at something unseen, some place or something unknown. Unnerved, but still Nebraskan AF, Dick called out to tell him hello. At the sound of his voice, clarion and clear in those murky, frosty moments, the old man simply wasn't. He didn't turn nor move. He didn't puff into a cloud of bro-thick vape smoke. He just ceased to exist, slipping from Dick's consciousness and understanding in silence. In March of 1981, the figure was there again, disturbing a dog, probably some guy named Dick and his wife as they walked through the park. The normally even-tempered dog, upon hearing the sounds of running water and catching sight or scent of something unknown, went full Cujo, snapping and snarling and generally making himself out to be one of the villains from a 90s Disney movie about plucky heroic animals and their fight for survival. But whatever the dog saw, whatever the couple felt or noticed, it was gone just like that. As the legend grew, so too did the questions. Who was this man? Who was the little girl? And how had they died? 
What was he or she doing in this spot? And what was their unearthly motive? Was it a ghost of a man long dead? Or was it a premonition of a death to come? Here again is where this silly, ghostly romp takes a very real, very tragic turn. Because we know that a 14-year-old boy named Dearly Alexander took a pipe and murdered Eugene Warren, an 80-year-old man on the sidewalk that boxed in the Lake Street Lake. He did it in broad daylight, with a pipe and a kind of superhuman rage for a boy so young. He snuffed out the life of Warren and turned away from his crime. He didn't dematerialize into thin air. He didn't fade out like a TV that you switch off back in the 1990s that thins down to a tiny disappearing box. He did something much, much scarier. He simply turned and walked away and went back to his life. He was a young man who was forever circling the system, troubled and in and out of the justice system and counseling. And like that endless forever loop on Lake Street, once he got in, Dearly Alexander couldn't seem to get out of that cycle. We don't know for certain what occurred that day, or if those early premonitions served as some kind of warning from whatever afterlife you believe in. But we do know that an old man was taken before he was meant to go by a young man who still had his whole life in front of him. Right there, alongside the stillness and quiet of this haunted lake. We can place the time of Mr. Warren's demise as several years after the three girls' ghost sighting that we talked about earlier, as well as several years after Dick Dutton's haunting on that freezing night. The growling and the gnawing that the couple we spoke about with the dog had to deal with at that spot appears to have been a scant few days after the murder occurred, though the timeline appears to be somewhat jumbled in Alan Boy's telling. And there are still tales from the lake to this day, not of a plesiosaur or something earthly and terrifying like so many lakes in the annals of history. No, the monsters at Lake Street are scary because they're not under the water. And this lake, which is now as dry as the mouths of those pedestrians who suddenly feel something, someone staring through them, as the rush of water comes unbidden to their ears, is famous for all the wrong reasons. Lake Street is haunted by the waters that no longer fill its banks and the stories that people tell about its present and its past. It's empty and full all at once. Thank you for listening. This has been the Ghosts of Lincoln podcast.
expected Need to make my heart like you a star Get you connected I'll meet you in the park I'm becoming collected But we knew right from the start That you'd fall apart Cause I'm too expensive It's gonna be something that shouldn't be Sing it all, no, I can't sing it.